Welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host. You'll find us here on PRN.FM on Mondays at 10 a.m. Then I have to, it sinks into me, that's Eastern American time. (laughs) We're totally global. So who knows what time it is where you are. You probably know. But if you don't catch us at this time on Mondays, you can catch us anytime. Uh, our back shows are on visionaries.podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. And we've got a couple dozen now really interesting shows with some really interesting guests. On Visionaries, we talk about creativity in the arts, science, technology, culture, and spirituality. But, and we usually have a guest, but today I don't have a guest. And I was going to talk about happiness And I did a book on creativity. It's called Visionary Creativity. You can find it on Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. And I looked at creativity in terms of its impact on the culture. What, What does it mean that we have creativity? How does it change things? And then there's a whole section of the book on what it means for the creative person themselves. And so... I gave some thought to that, and uh, a lot of very creative people are not very happy. So I had a a chapter on that, and I ended up really denigrating the notion of happiness and said it makes much more sense to talk instead about joy. And I'll develop over the course of our show today what I mean by that, but I like to uh, free associate, uh, free form radio, right? And uh, and so last night I'm flipping channels and I come across Lucy, 19, I'm sorry, 2014 film by Luc Besson starring Scarlett Johansson. Hope you've seen the movie. It's one of those movies I'll watch it any time it comes on. Uh, and it's about a ordinary American woman living in in. Um, She's living in in the Far East, and where was she living? Um, So let's look at plot. Uh, Anyway, she's living in a city in the Far East, maybe in Manila or something like that, and she totally inadvertently gets caught up in a major drug deal where she gets kidnapped, and she and a half dozen other people have their bellies cut open and sewn into them bags of this super new, super illegal drug that they're supposed to then smuggle to Europe and the United States. There's an accident, and her drug gets released, and it gives her superpowers. And the notion in the film is, uh, and we can take it with a grain of salt, that we only use 10% of our brain, and this drug causes her to be able to use 100% of the brain which gives her total control over space and time. Uh, And along the way, she develops more and more powers. So 
you know, you don't have to take seriously how much of the brain we do or don't use. That's a generally discredited notion right now. But the whole idea that there are these other layers of capabilities, that's been around for quite a while, and the film really develops it. And then there's an interesting problem for movies like that, and the problem is once you have this super insight into transcending space and time, what does the world look like? Well, <laughs> it looks like a light show, right? We saw that uh, first in 2001, which does one of the better jobs of it, I think. In other words, by it gives us a light show, which was very much of its time. We can do better light shows now with the special effects of today's films. But then the way he goes back and forward in time in 2001 and then becomes the star child, this new uh, uh, fetus that is in a bubble returning to Earth and about to be born as the new stage of the human race. And then, you know, it's got to leave it at that. But, you know, what does it mean? What is going to happen? What what does it mean to have these new layers of what? Creative powers, uh, mental powers. Uh, and so Lucy's, I think, one of the better films about that. Another one that I I don't rewatch very often, but has spawned its own TV series is Limitless. <clears throat> and in that one, there's a very smart but you know, disorganized, can't get his act together, writer can't finish his book, and a relative pushes onto him a, a pill, a new drug. And he takes it, and suddenly, you know, his fingers can fly over the keyboard, he can finish his novel, he can uh, go out and, uh, you know, sense things and stuff like that, and lots of twists and turns in the plot, but, you know, do we have, I do, <laughs> how many of us would like to be like that, to be like super, super attentive, to like really be uh, taking in the world in this intense way. Another film that does that, uh, going back a bit in time, wow, how time flies, uh, Jack Nicholson in Wolf with, um, with uh, Michelle Pfeiffer. And in that movie, Jack Nicholson is playing a, uh, an editor, at, chief editor at a New York publisher, book publisher. And there's a corporate takeover going on. He's kind of a meek guy, doesn't fight back. He's being, his wife's having an affair. He, uh, he sort of knows who it is. The... He's going to be demoted and pushed out of the company with this uh, corporate takeover of the you know conglomerates taking over the publisher. And he's out driving one night, and he hits a wolf with his car. And he gets out of the car, goes over to, you know, the wolf is looking dead. And he touches it. The wolf jumps up, bites him, and runs off. Well, guess what? It was a werewolf. And so... He begins slowly to develop these extra, ec, not, I shouldn't say extrasensory, stronger senses. He can hear everybody in the building. He can smell where people have been the night before. And 
he begins to get organized to fight back against this corporate takeover. But then uh, the film, you know, and then, of course, plots, twists, and turns. His arch uh, rival enemy, he bites that person. So now they're both werewolves and they have a big fight. And uh, in the end, as two wolves, he and Michelle Pfeiffer leap over the undergrowth into the forest and run off. And the message of a film like that is not that we should go look for a werewolf to bite us, uh, but that we should attempt to have experience that inner powers within us coming awake and to more intensely experience and live in our world. And then before these kinds of movies, I guess they were always around. Maybe they date back to Dracula. But I first encountered this theme in Andre Gide's The Immoralist, in which our character, Michel, uh, is a young man, an academic, totally out of touch with himself. <laughs> it's a real literary theme, right? And he gets married not knowing what he's doing, and it being France, they're Parisians, he and his wife go off to Tunisia for their honeymoon, which, would, you know, today would be like the Hamptons. Uh, uh, it was the French uh, coastal experience. And he has tuberculosis, and he has a cathartic experience in which he has a violent attack, and he coughs up a giant blood clot, and then suddenly that's like releasing energy in him. He starts to be cured of his uh, tuberculosis. He feels these powers welling up in him. He starts traveling. He becomes insensitive to his wife, who now becomes ill. And in his insensitivity, she uh, eventually uh, she dies. And then he goes off into the desert, experiencing this energy welling up. But he's not sure what to do with it, and the, and the novel leaves us kind of um, kind of not knowing what direction his life will take, and that's a um, you know that's the way literature does it. When I recommend this theme to uh, my students today, I don't really recommend the Immoralist, but I recommend those movies because it's the same idea. But they are, it's, you know, we can relate more to movies today than we can to turn-of-the-century French literary novels. Although The Immoralist is something that, uh, you know, every five years or so I'll reread. Very brief uh, but powerful book. And so thinking about this theme, I went into my own book, Visionary Creativity, and dug up a quote from... Jerry Seinfeld, of all people. So I was a big Seinfeld fan, watched it. You know, it was 11 o'clock every night, would watch it on TV, all the repeats. I remember when I, you know, I was just not the kind of person who, when it originally came out, that was going to watch a TV sitcom called Seinfeld. Yeah, right. <laughs> I remember the same experience with... Um, 
with uh, Miami Vice. Yeah, I'm going to watch something called Miami Vice. And I'm sitting there working on my computer. I had a tiny little nine-inch black and white TV next to it. And I'm flipping channels, and Miami Vice comes on. And I look at it and say, what is that? And I rush out into the living room and put it on the the big uh, color TV that we had. Oh, my God. (laughs) You know, and I was an immediate... uh, immediate uh, Miami Vice fan thereafter and watched all of them. Interestingly, it doesn't wear as well as some other shows. We don't, uh, at least in New York, I haven't seen uh, that many uh, regular repeats of Miami Vice, but incredible show and a real, a real uh, milestone of its time. Well, anyway, same thing. I'm flipping channels, and I run across Seinfeld, and, you know, Seinfeld and uh, um, his buddies are sitting in the cafe in Monks, right? Which, if we go up to Columbia University, there it is. There's a Seinfeld cafe. Anyway, <clears throat> they're sitting there. I watch it for a few minutes. I say, this show is about nothing. <laughs> you know, there's George, there's Jerry, and they're talking about nothing. And I, Unbeknownst to me, that's the theme. <laughs> it's about nothing. So anyway, <clears throat> I uh, immediately became a Seinfeld addict and sort of interested in, you know, following through how it developed. And as a result of that, I don't really watch it that much anymore. You know, it's on every night. Now I watch Big Bang Theory. <laughs> and sometimes I watch Modern Family. Boy, is Modern Family good. I don't have kids, so I don't relate to it as much as I might otherwise, but it is so well done. But anyway, uh, some years after the Seinfeld um, series stopped, uh, Jerry Seinfeld was immensely rich. He had more money. Uh, if you look it up, I think it's it's listed between 50 and $100 million that he has, and he could do anything he wanted. And he didn't want to do any more TV. He had done that. And eventually he did that. What is it? Uh, comedians driving in cars getting coffee or something like that, which, you know, is just something he wanted to do. But he went back to doing stand-up comedy, which is which his origins. And somebody made a movie, a documentary movie titled Comedian. And it sort of follows Seinfeld working in small nightclubs. And in the movie, a young comic complains to Seinfeld about not having a a normal wife. No wife, no kids, no house, no money. And, you know, the life of a stand-up comedian who (laughs) isn't Seinfeld, you know, it's a a hard life as entertainers. At least he's not a waiter, right? you know, I I have various friends who are writing screenplays, and I wonder why they're not getting anywhere. You know, in New York, only every fourth person has a screenplay. <laughs> in L.A., it's every second person has a screenplay. Um, I've got one on my computer. It's more of a novel. I don't know which way it's going to go. But anyway, uh, Seinfeld in the movie, Comedian, becomes annoyed with this young comedian who's bugging him about, you know, how... The stand-up is such a rough life. And Seinfeld says, I have to tell you a story. 
Glenmoa's Orchestra, they were doing a gig somewhere, and they couldn't land where they were supposed to land because it was snowing. So they have to land in this field and walk to the gig. And they're dressed, and they have to carry their instruments, so they're walking to where they're supposed to perform, and it's wet and slushy. And in the distance, they see this house, and there are lights on, and there's smoke coming out of the chimney. So they walk up and look in the window, and they see this family, a guy and his wife. She's beautiful, and two kids, and they're all sitting around this table. They're smiling and laughing and eating. There's a fire in the fireplace. These guys are standing outside in their suits, and they're wet, and they're shivering. They're holding their instruments. They're watching this incredible Norman Rockwell scene, and one guy turns to the other guys and goes, how do people live like that? (laughs) And Seinfeld goes on, that's what it's about, love of the craft. The band much rather struggle doing what they love than what they love the most than be comfortable in a place they hate. Chasing your dreams or letting your dreams chase you, that's what it's about. So there's a, uh, I hate to use that word, you know, uh, identify your passion. But, yeah, that's what he's talking about, and that's the word people use. So with apologies, we'll use it at the moment. So that's what, you know, sort of the theme that I thought that uh, I might talk about today. And what I did was uh, look at some people that we respect, and, you know, some of the more creative figures of uh, of all time and um, and think about how they um, worked out their lives. And we'll look at that. But before we do, <clears throat> my book was about creativity. I'm working on another book, you know, now more broadly. But I realize not everybody is creative. Not everybody wants to be creative. And I describe visionary creativity as really remaking the world. And that's something some people want to do. They're just driven to, you know, why don't people see things the way I do? And they're driven to create things that will enable other people to see what they see. And I think this takes place not only in the arts, but in technology, business, science, etc. But Besides creatives, there there are various types, right? And so maybe it helps in developing your own life to know what type you are. That's another terrible cliche. (laughs) What type are you? And there are leaders, nurturers, producers, makers, active, scholars, mystics. And I like to pick on some people, somnambulists. So a leader might find joy in heading a corporation or taking a university department to another level. And, you know, I'm struck by the really, you know, the really great leaders that I've seen in my experiences more in academia, but you see it in business. And they're very often not the most creative people. Uh, An exception was Steve Jobs. But another great corporate leader of the 20th century, the competitor with Steve Jobs is the most uh, the greatest CEO, was Jack Welsh of General Electric. Jack Welsh wasn't creative. He was a leader. And it was his job to identify the people who were creative and to 
give them their head, allow them to uh, do their thing and to develop and nurture them as creative people develop and nurture other leaders. And so that's a leader. Uh, a nurturer uh, might find joy in seeing a child grow up healthy and go on to flourish or teaching and opening up opportunities for others. So nurturers, you know, get their joy in helping others, helping others develop and become the best they can become. A producer might find joy in organizing the manufacturing process for a new mobile communications device or making a violin. Uh, just, you know, making things happen, putting it all together, getting the talent all in the right places so that it happens. There are people who that's their thing. And they're not the um, they're not the leader, they're not the nurturer, they're not the creative. They are the producer, the one who organizes and puts it all together. Uh, a maker might find joy in making things. We could get all these books now about maker culture and, you know, with 3D printers and the ability to make and put things together. But you think of kids with their Lego blocks and that's just their thing. They want to make things. When I was a kid, they didn't have Lego blocks, right? We had Ravel models. <laughs> we had erector sets, Lincoln logs, and then Ravel models. And these people uh, wanted to, they just have this pleasure in putting things together. My, <laughs> I was a bit that way. My mother was very astute. I wanted to go to, uh, I'm embarrassed to say, <laughs> an Ivy League school you know, a top school. I mean, my mother said, uh, one, my mother wanted to apprentice me to a violin maker. <laughs> Would have made a lot more money, right? Uh, uh, there are few people who can do that these days. And I said, no, I got to go to architecture school. And then, well, you could go to Pratt. No, I want to go to, you know, Columbia or Penn. I ended up going to the University of Pennsylvania. But there are people who are makers who just want to make things. Then there are actives. And actives are people who do things. You know, we hear stories about uh, we academics, like myself, assume everybody wants to be like us. You know, that the top of the food chain is sitting behind a desk. And, you know, as first as a, in case of academia, a professor, then a chair, and then a dean, and then a provost, and then a president, university president. Some people don't want to do that. And you think of uh, police that, well, you know, there's the beat, the um, uniformed officer on the beat, and then there's the detective, you know, behind the desk. And, well, you know, if you're smart and you're capable, you move up to be detective. Well, there are a lot of beat cops who don't want to sit behind a desk. They want to be outdoors and active. And, you know, the same thing with firefighters. They want to be active. And they don't even want to be a cop just walking back and forth. They want to be charging into burning buildings all day, every day. That's what they want to do. The ultimate expression of that, right, is special forces. Those um, super, during the, the first uh, beginning of the Afghan war, they were referred to as Olympic athletes with guns. <laughs> and it's really rough on them when they retire. You know, a lot of them become smoke jumpers. You know, jump out of airplanes and fight forest fires out in the West. Um, 
but they want to be act. That's what they want to do. They're, uh, you know, these upstate and Canadian Indians who would wander into New York City and on the weekends, and they'd be caught picnicking up on the steelwork for skyscrapers. <laughs> it's like being up there. And it was discovered that they're very comfortable with heights. There's something going on there. And a lot of the, a lot of them are now steel workers. They just want to be up there putting the steel together for <laughs> up on the 50th floor above the city. They just love being active. Scholars. Uh, and uh, a scholar might find joy in pursuing a scientific insight or researching a book. I just love sitting there, you know, with editing my book. The initial writing is hard, but then editing and moving it around and getting, you know, looking up the information. Before Wikipedia, I would just sit on the bed with me on one half the bed and piles of books on the other half the bed uh, working on my, on my manuscripts. A mystic might find joy in meditation or experiencing oneness, and a somnambulist might find happiness in achieving a feeling of well-being, uh, but I think we can do better than that. That's why these are the categories. So I'm going to go on and talk more about uh, uh, how did this, this notion of creativity and finding joy in what we're good at doing in a moment, but now let's uh, just take a break for a minute and see what other things are on on PRN? Do you want to know the latest news or upcoming events? Follow us at Twitter at PRN underscore radio or click the Twitter icon on our homepage. You can also friend us on Facebook. Just search Progressive Radio Network. Always new and up to date. The Progressive Radio Network, your home for thoughtful and informative information. Hi, everybody. I am Karen Hartglass, the host of It's All About Food. Join me every Tuesday from 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern Time or catch all of my shows in the archives. You can find my archive programs at the Progressive Radio Network website or you can call my personal archive phone number to hear the most recent five episodes of It's All About Food. Here's the number, 1-701-719-719. 0885. Here it is again. 1-701-719-0885. Learn about how we can solve many of the world's problems today and do it deliciously here on It's All About Food. South of the border. I'm Johnny Mueller, host of the Expat Files, That's living in Latin America. Heard Friday at 11 a.m. and Sunday at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's a show where you'll learn how to work, play, do business, or retire and live the life of Riley. Yes, an amazing number of first world people like you are jumping off the stateside treadmill and voting with their feet. And surprise, surprise, they're finding there really is an American dream. But it's not in Seattle, Milwaukee, or Cleveland anymore. It's down here in Latin America. So be sure to tune in to the Expat Files to find out how you can live the good life on a measly social security check. So welcome back to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle. I'm here every Monday at 10 a.m. 
if you're in the east coast of the U.S., but we're global, right? So you got to figure out what time that is for you. And as you, if you're listening now, you know we're on prn.fm. And you can also catch this show in a couple of days. It'll be up. And all our back shows on visionaries.podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N, as in Nancy, dot com. So you can go back, look at our past shows. We've had some really great guests on. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, Yvonne Shumkoff and Build Academy. And Yvonne was a colleague of mine at Pratt Institute teaching architecture. And uh, <laughs> he got this idea, why don't I start my own university? And, of course, not brick and mortar, but uh, these things are happening now as online. And so there are lots of uh, major online universities now. Uh, this has been going on forever. I taught, actually, a course partially online, just to tell you how old I am, in 1985. And it just ran when I got my first Mac, which I got in 84, just when it came out with that famous commercial. And, but it's been developing ever since. And there are things like Coursera and, uh, and edX and Udacity. And these started with, uh, particularly MIT began just putting everything online. And, you know, all the course outlines and the supplementary material and then recording lectures. And their notion was they're, you know, not in a business to make money. They're in the uh, mission to spread scientific engineering education. And yes, there are people who are rich enough and in the right place at the right time and have the uh, the grades, are good at taking exams, and they can get into MIT. But there are other people that might benefit from what they have to offer as well, and they just put it all online. So if some you know teacher in Africa wants to give a physics class, they can uh, – do have the students watch the MIT physics course and then, you know, answer questions and supplement it. So that's called blended learning, where we use online with, um, with the brick and mortar sitting in the classroom. And actually, if you're interested in checking me out, I record most of my lectures that I give at Pratt, and you'll find them on YouTube. So you just go to YouTube and uh, search John Lobel. You'll find my channel. I've got over 90,000 views of these lectures. So <laughs> that's more That's more people than I've reached teaching <laughs> in 40-plus years. So uh, there are lectures on technology, but most of them are on architecture, history of architecture, Franklin Wright, Robert Venturi, Louis Kahn. I teach courses in those people a lot of non-Western architecture, lectures on China, Japan, India. So if you, uh, you'll find my material there. Anyway, Yvonne decided that there was nobody doing an architecture school online. So he set that up. And it's interesting if you're thinking starting your own business. <laughs> uh, listen to this uh, back show with Yvonne Shimkoff because, you know, what he went through, you know, it's like, Okay, you know, we got people coming to our product, but it's not making any money. <laughs> what do we do next? And so we did all the right things, and it's an interesting story. 
I did um, a show on Marshall McLuhan, and we had it was a terrific show because we had lots of uh, recordings of McLuhan uh, developing his basic ideas. Everybody's heard of McLuhan, but I noticed that my students and even my faculty colleagues haven't read McLuhan, so you might want to go back and check that out. We had a terrific writer named Phil Cousineau, who I met because he did a book on Joseph Campbell, The Hero's Journey, and you want to hear him. And then, speaking of Joseph Campbell, we had a show with the director of the Joseph Campbell Foundation, Bob Walter, and we listened to some recordings of Campbell. I did one with Natasha Vita Moore, who's sort of the poster person for transhumanism. And you want to check that out. What, you know, what's things going to be like when we start implanting chips in our brains? The cultural critic John Eberg appeared. So those are some of our back shows. Go to, um, go to visionaries.podbean.com. You can find out more about me at johnlabelle.com and visionarycreativity.com. So anyway, we're talking today about creativity and, I said, joy. And so in working on a study of creativity, after looking at its impact on the culture, what does creativity do, you know, when it impacts the culture? Then I looked at, well, what does it mean to be a creative person? And let's start by saying there are lots of really normal, (laughs) successful, creative people But then there are a lot who aren't so normal. I think of the normal ones. You know, if you were to ask someone in creative studies about how someone might become creative, there's all this stuff about harmony and balance and balanced life and work-life balance. And I'll use a technical term here, but I think there's a lot of BS there. You know, there are plenty of creative people who get really focused some who maybe were balanced. We might think of um, the American poets, Wallace Stevens, William Carlos Williams, and T.S. Eliot, who were an insurance executive, a doctor, and a banker, as well as being poets. But then you might think of the French novelist, Balzac, who would awaken at midnight, drink a dozen cups of black coffee, eat prunes to clean out his system, so that the coffee could take maximum effect and then work for 15 straight hours. Or the French symbolist poets who believe that the ultimate truth of things lies beneath the surface and can only be described symbolically. So we have Charles Baudelaire, Paul-Marie Verlaine, and Arthur Rimbaud. (laughs) Boy, their poetry was remarkable, but their lives were tumultuous included Poverty, indebtedness, imprisonment, alcoholism, drug addiction, syphilis, violence, and early deaths. So we don't recommend that, but we do notice it among creative figures. And so we have this notion of um, uh, creativity. If we look it up, we'll find that it's supposed to... um, you know, come from a balanced, well-lived life. And then we start looking at some biographies. So I just took some major figures, uh, Alexander Pope. So I remember in uh, college English, we read The Rape of the Lock, 
And there's this great quote from Pope, because I write about Newton, and so his epitaph from Pope was, Nature and nature's law lay hidden in the night. God said, let Newton be, and all was light. Well, who was Pope? Guy was four foot eleven, deformed, had a hunchback from tuberculosis of the bone, which led to difficulties with breathing, fever, inflamed eyes, frequent abdominal pain. He also suffered from being Catholic in England at a time when it was illegal for Catholics to attend a university, teach, vote, or public, hold a public office, or live within 10 miles of London. So despite that, he became one of the great poets of the English language, the third most frequently quoted writer in the Oxford Dictionary of Quotations after Shakespeare and Tennyson. So was Pope happy? Um, or is that the right question? And of course, we all know about the torments that uh, Beethoven suffered. Uh, he grew up with an abusive, alcoholic father. He loved his brother, but he could never call his brother by his name because his name, his brother's name, was the same as his father's. They just couldn't speak it. He um, began to lose his hearing at an early age, which. We don't know the cause. It could have been autoimmune condition. He became seriously ill many times, uh, often hovering near death. And then when his brother died in 1815, he embarked on an ugly and ill-conceived legal effort to gain custody of his brother's nine-year-old son away from the boy's mother. He eventually, after years, run this custody battle <laughs> in response to living with Beethoven, the poor kid shot himself in the head. <laughs> and then when he recovered, he joined the army. <laughs> so, I mean, what a difficult life. And then finally, uh, Beethoven seriously contemplated uh, suicide and wrote uh, a what's a uh, famous suicide note. And then he finally said, he, he, there is this woman who refers to as his mortal beloved. The scholars are not sure exactly who she is, but he was um, finally decided that rather than commit suicide, he was going to remake himself as a romantic hero and created his third symphony and eventually the fifth and the ninth that are... Uh, joyous expressions of existence despite this difficult life. Another one was Friedrich Nietzsche, who was Ill, Ill and in pain throughout his entire life from a series of infections probably that he got during military service. He uh, tried to propose to a very interesting woman who turned him down. Uh, he traveled constantly looking for climates that would help with his ill health. His suffered severe headaches. His eyesight was failing. He had to have other people read to him. And he would just drag himself to his writing table to write only a few minutes a day that he could, books saying yes to life. And of course, most prominent, if we're looking at people like this, would be Van Gogh, who just went through one difficulty after another. He <laughs> wanted to become a clergyman, 
flunked the exams, got fired, uh, went from one uh, religion to another looking for a job, got jobs in um, art galleries, got fired for uh, putting down the art, which didn't help with the customers, kept falling in love with the wrong person, who would then uh, who would then not do well, like commit attempt to commit suicide, you know, typically an alcoholic prostitute. Uh, <laughs> dealing with him, his father finally died of a heart attack. In the meantime, he's making these incredible paintings that you know just change the world. So we can look at figures like this and and think about what is it that we're looking forward in our lives? What is it that uh, we want to do? And, uh, you know, would these people have done better if they had been happier? And so there's this whole field of happiness studies, and they call it hedonics to make it sound, you know, <laughs> official. But I mean, there are major departments in major universities working on this stuff and defining happiness as a feeling of contentment, satisfaction, well-being, pleasure, a positive emotional state. This stuff's actually taken seriously. There, there are academic journals about this. And in a science magazine that I respect, I won't name them, but uh, there's a great um, um, a quote from a recent article. Feeling good has been shown to improve people's creativity and ability to solve problems. In one experiment, subjects were shown a video of comedy bloopers to lighten their mood before being presented with a practical problem involving a box of matches, uh, a book of a box of tacks, and a candle. Experimenters found that people who had viewed the comedy clips were more likely to solve the problem. How unfortunate that Alexander Pope, Beethoven, Nietzsche, and Van Gogh didn't know about this. <laughs> and about the five steps to achieve positive genius. So there are these books, you know, that, because I was writing a book on creativity, I read all the books on creativity and genius and it's amazing how many of them tell us that we're all geniuses. You know, all you have to do is put in the 10,000 hours. Well, I'm not, so <laughs> I try my best. But, um, and then we're told that um, we can actually measure happiness. And so we all know that uh, GDP, gross domestic product, which is, you know, supposed to grow and it hasn't been growing. Well, you know, a hurricane can increase GDP. A car wreck increases GDP. So how, couldn't there be a better measurement that doesn't, you know, that really looks at improvements in good stuff and not just, uh, you know, wars increase GDP? So we've come up with uh, the Gross Happiness Index. And there's a British group that ranks countries by happiness and... The United States in this, their ranking comes out 150th. I think there's only like 160 countries in the world. So there's sort of a bias going on here. And the bias is how do you define happiness? And if you define happiness as 
uh, say, social interaction, then if people get together and mingle, that will increase happiness. And if someone goes off to be alone to read a Russian novel, uh, that's going to decrease happiness by their measurement. So these things are very biased. So I rather work from um, work from biography uh, rather than from psychological measurement. You might recall um, the British actor Hugh Laurie, who is in that series about um, uh, what is it? He's a, plays a doctor, right? Uh, what's the name of that show? Anyway, uh, uh, Dr. House. And uh, this is a great quote from him. It says, I equate happiness with contentment and contentment with complacency and complacency with impending disaster. So I think, <laughs> you know, maybe that's a better way to think about it. So since the term happiness uh, has been hijacked by advocates, Kids of hedonic somnambulism, I use the term joy. And I like to say joy comes from unleashing inner drives so frightening to policymakers and academics that they do not even want to acknowledge their existence. So if you think about it, uh, Joseph Campbell says something like, Myth is the op- cosmic uh, myth is the opening through which cosmic energies pour into manifestation. Okay, now, how would a psychologist measure increase or decreases of cosmic energy in their rats as they run them through a maze? You know, it's just like that. But isn't this the way we want to talk about art? And so there's just no compatibility between creativity in the arts and, and psychology, which is just about, you know, some whole other thing. So um, there's a great episode of Doctor Who. So how many out there? You know, I like to say how many. Raise your hand, right, because I'm a professor. So how many of my students have watched know who Doctor Who is? How many people have watched Doctor Who? It's been around forever <clears throat> with many changes in actors. Uh, I think one of the Doctor Who actors is currently the husband of Queen Elizabeth on this new series about the life of Queen Elizabeth. So, uh, Queen Elizabeth II. So, anyway, um, Doctor Who is this long running. British television science fiction series about a time lord, Doctor Who, who travels through time in a, in a phone booth, right? <laughs> so we've seen that phone booth in Big Bang Theory. And I don't know, I wonder how my wife would feel if I got that phone booth. <laughs> oh, I went to uh, eBay, got one of those phone booths for the living room. Anyway, uh, uh, Doctor Who and his companion Amy traveled to, um, well, they're at, a, at an art exhibit, and they're looking at the work of Vincent van Gogh, and they see in one of his paintings, just kind of abstractly, dimly av- uh, visible in the window of a building, is this thing. And Doctor Who represent, recognizes it as a dangerous space creature. So Doctor Who, and who has to be destroyed, 
Unfortunately, it's like a giant ostrich, and uh, so they have to kill the poor thing. But anyway, Doctor Who and Amy travel back in time to 1890 to Provence to enlist the aid of Vincent van Gogh in uh, taking on and having to kill this space creature. And they successfully uh, do in the space creature. It's all rather ugly. But they form an affection for Van Gogh. And uh, in an attempt to relieve him of his despair, they bring him forward in time to our time, to the present, to see an exhibit of his work in Paris. And Van Gogh, Van Gogh is overwhelmed by, you know, the enthusiastic reception that his painting is having, how people are admiring him. And then within earshot of Van Gogh, uh, Doctor Who goes over to the curator's exhibit and um, says, where do you think Van Gogh rates in the history of art? And the curator, played with British Solemnity by Bill Nighy, replies, well, a big question, but to me, Van Gogh is the finest painter of them all. Certainly the most popular great painter of all time, the most beloved, his command of color, the most magnificent. He transformed the pain of his tormented life into ecstatic beauty. Pain is easy to portray, but to use your passion and pain to portray the ecstatic ecstasy and joy and magnificence of our world, no one had done that before. Perhaps no one ever will do it again. To my mind, that strange wild man who roamed the fields of Provence was not only the world's greatest artist, but also one of the greatest men who ever lived. So, you know, which is just overwhelming. Van Gogh hears this in Doctor Who. But Van, the real Van Gogh never heard words like that. And, of course, it would have been wonderful if he had had. But then you ask, did he need to? I mean, just or did he know what he was doing? And Van Gogh wrote to his brother Theo, wings, wings to fly above life. Wings to fly above the grave of death. That is what we want, and I'm beginning to understand that we can get them. So we can see, you know, that Van Gogh had this religious vision. And, you know, we, we might associate it with a kind of mental problem. Uh, and uh, maybe some of us have experienced something like that with our own mental problems or with... Uh, certain chemical aids, but um, there is access to this otherworldly realm that some people have, and Van Gogh did, and was driven to bring what he saw there into this world so that other people could experience it. So that we might say his greatest despair was his inability to fully manifest that in his painting. I mean, we're delighted with what he was able to, but we know that he wanted to accomplish uh, so much more. So we look at the lives of these artists and think, for example, um, besides Van Gogh, you know, it's so many of them and the difficulties they've lived through. The Austrian painter Egon Schiele, uh, a... Um, a disciple or you know, supported by Gustav Klimt. So Klimt was accept, 
accepted in the leading circles of Vienna. There was a great Egon Schierle show at the uh, New Gallery in, um, in, on Museum Mile on Fifth Avenue, which has German and uh, Viennese art and a little Viennese cafe. <clears throat> but there are also, you can see his works and books are today. Right now, while you're listening, pop over to Google Image, and you can see Egon Schiele online. And he did some very, um, shall we say, despairingly erotic work where, you know, this is not happy eroticism, but kind of tormented tension on the parts of the young men and the young women he depicts erotically. And uh, this horrible death that uh, Egon Schiele had where he spent the last three days of he was in <coughs> excuse me, let me get a drink of water here. <coughs> Schiele was in his studio and he was uh, it was after World War I, Europe was shattered. Uh, you know, you couldn't get food, you couldn't get anything. And then on top of that, there was the Spanish flu. So World War I killed about 20 million people, and the Spanish flu killed about another 20 million people. And Sheely's, um young wife had died from the flu. She was pregnant. She was dead. He couldn't afford a funeral. Her body was in the apartment. He spent the last three days of his life drawing his dead wife, and we have those drawings. And um, he said, writing to his mother, all beautiful, noble qualities have been united in me. I shall be the fruit which will leave eternal vitality behind me after its decay. And then he wrote, the war is over and I must go. My paintings will be shown in all the museums. So um, those are some of the powers of experience that some of these creative people have. And the I'll use the word joy that they sometimes experience, if not happiness, in terms of feelings of well-being. No, Egon Schiele, Van Gogh. Beethoven uh, didn't have feelings of well-being, but they had feelings of being in touch with transcendent energies and being able to bring an in-touchness with those energies into their work and then making it available to all of us. So, wrapping up, uh, I'm John Lobel. This is Visionaries. We're here on PRN. FM, Progressive Radio Network, Mondays at 10 a.m. if you're in the eastern United States. But since we're global, you could be anywhere. And be sure to catch this show and our back shows on Visionaries, V-I-S-I-O-N-A-R-I-E-S dot Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N is a Nancy, Nancy dot com. And so... See you next time, and we'll uh, be looking again at creativity and bringing various creative figures into our studio. Oh, oh, oh.